I realized there was something about also being a role model for other women, that there were so few women in these positions that instead of trying to deny that I was a woman CEO, that there was some merit to embracing that. Because if people see you could be vulnerable and talk about it, it would help a lot more other women aspire to that. And I always say that one of the most valuable lessons I learned that I think it's true for anybody to this day is the difference between a job and a career. And there's one word that separates those two things and the word is passion. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas and candid discussions from some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Jenny Rometty. Jenny is the executive chairman of IBM, where she has worked for nearly 40 years. Most recently, she served as president, CEO, and chairman of IBM from 2012 until April of this year. I've had the opportunity to work with Jenny on a number of initiatives, and she is a real change agent and difference maker. She's always defined her job expansively, and she's never been afraid to take risks to achieve positive outcomes. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Hank. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Let's start with your early career. When did you decide you wanted to pursue a career in business and what inspired this interest, Jenny? Well, as I think back, it would probably all be attributed to my mother. And I think Hank, you and I have taught, my mom, when I was about 16 years old, found herself as a single mother. My father had left, but my mother had never worked a day in her life. And here she was without a job, without a home, without money, and she had four of us, four children. And what I watched at that time, and I really believe I learned indirectly from my mom, was not only the value of an education, because she had to go back to school, she, she somehow was gonna get us off of food stamps. She had to go back to school, get an education. She'd only had a high school degree, but it taught me something else, which is related to going into business. When I watched my mom struggle, it taught me I never want to be dependent on someone else. I will always be independent, no matter what I do. And that, of course, would lead to then saying, you've got to have a career. And that, therefore, that's what I really learned indirectly from my mother, was this passion to go into doing something that at a sort of a primary level, I could take care of myself, but at a secondary level, then I could contribute. Very interesting, because that's where my interest in business came from, from my mom also. During the Depression, her father had lost his job. And her mother had supported the family with a catering business. And, you know, she always pushed me on the education front and uh, nudged me toward business. Now, you got your start working in autos at GM. Why the shift to tech? Okay, everyone always seems it's a little bit of an odd place that I started. But related to that story about my mother, who, again, I believe in this country where there's a will, there's a way to do anything. So I found myself and I found scholarships at Northwestern. But one of the scholarships I found at Northwestern University in Chicago was all around working my summers at General Motors. And it was in the days when in exchange for my summers, they helped pay my tuition at Northwestern. So I felt an obligation to at least give it a try and start. And I always say that one of the most valuable lessons I learned that I think it's true for anybody to this day is the difference between a job and a career. And there's one word that separates those two things and the word is passion. 
And I can remember in the middle of the night getting up to work on trucks and buses and, and I was in systems, I was in technology and you know, this line would break and I thought to myself, what am I doing? And not that it wasn't a great company and I learned many things and I'm forever grateful for what they did. But I could see at that really young age in my 20s that there was a difference between a job and a career and that word passion separated them. There sure is. Now, and then 40 years at IBM, 40 years, what kept you at IBM? Well, I think, I think of two things. One is challenge, and the second word is purpose. And first challenge, you know, 40 years, people think you've done the same thing. I feel like I've had 20 different careers in IBM in a 40-year period. And when you look at when I started, it was in the days when they hired me as one of their first professional hires because I knew how to transform the back office of a bank. And so it was all the systems that now seem, you know, like that was a million years ago on how to automate the back office of a bank. But then I had the chance to build the services business, which is now the largest services business in the world. And then as I went on, I was both an engineer, I was in sales, I was in marketing, I was in development. And then of course, eventually ended up as CEO and had then the learning experience of transforming this company through arguably its most significant transformation of its history to now become a hybrid cloud company. But with each job, it's kind of a funny thing. I always say to people, even today, I'll say, look, every company, it gives you an opportunity and then has to earn the right for you to stay for the next one. And so I felt on each one of those, I really just focused on the next thing. And then IBM earned the right by what the next challenge was that I stayed. And then in the end, I think for all of us, and it's not just reflective, people stayed with companies that have purpose. And I see that with now people who join us because I always felt in the end, we not only did the right things, we always worked to help change change the world to be a better place in our own small way, however we could contribute. And, and with IBM, it's been a big way. But, you know, Jenny, I'm going to get to something you alluded to. I've worked with a lot of CEOs. You know, I was a CEO myself for, for eight years. Every CEO wants to lead her company well positioned to meet the challenges and the opportunities ahead. And you sure did that. Tell us a little bit about the changes made during your tenure as CEO at IBM. Why were they made and what do you view as the most important ones? Yes, well, look, I think there's something to learn because IBM is a hundred and, let's see, 109 years old, about to be 110 years old. And if you're going to last that long, you will go through some pretty world-shaking changes to your business model. All business models change, and to me, they're the hardest things to change as a business model. They're also the things that threaten you the most. And there's been several big eras of technology change. And so when I took charge in 2012, obviously the cloud era was well underway. And at our heart, we're an enterprise company. We are not a consumer company. So we're not a search company. We're not an iPhone company. We are not, but we help enterprises do what is really mission critical work in the world, which is why you find us in all the banks and the airlines and the telcos. And it's really serious work where clients have to trust you and what you do. But we had to modernize and change for this new cloud and data era. And so that's been what I say has been my, my mission in my tenure, which also meant getting out of a lot of businesses. So things like semiconductors that we actually birthed that industry. I mean, we birthed Intel. It was 60 years ago we started semiconductor manufacturing, which we now, we sold that business. So whether it was x86 servers that we went, that was probably one of the, Hank, the last things that went through to the Chinese that we sold to Lenovo 
the server business. I remember. Um, One thing after another, because you have to make room for the new, right, and reorient your capital allocation. And and now today, having just finished the largest software acquisition in the world and cloud company, Red Hat, I feel the company is absolutely now got its foundation as a hybrid cloud company because that's kind of the reality of where real true enterprises are today. And Jenny, of course, since becoming CEO of IBM in 2012, you've been one of the country's most prominent female business leaders. How do you think about that? And what were some of the challenges you faced along the way? Well, I'd certainly never thought of myself as being a prominent female in the beginning business leader. I always just thought of myself as how to be a great CEO of IBM. I will also, though, tell you, Hank, as I became more reflective as the years went on, I realized there was something about also being a role model for other women, that there were so few women in these positions that instead of trying to deny that I was a woman CEO, that there was some merit to embracing that. Because if people see you could be vulnerable and talk about it, it would help a lot more other women aspire to that. And so some sort of way mid-course, I did begin to talk about that more and talk a bit about what it meant to be a woman in this kind of a role. I think you and I have talked about, there's no doubt along the way, given there's fewer women, everything I do is personalized and it's magnified. And uh, it's something you just have to get used to and have a bit of a, a, a thick skin about. And it's one of the things that I talk to a lot of women about. And a, a phrase I coined was that growth and comfort never coexist. And that if you want to grow, you will always be uncomfortable. And that you should become comfortable with that. That, that when you take a risk, it actually means you're growing and getting better at something. And I believe it's true for people, companies, countries, the same thing, that growth and comfort never coexist. And that's probably the biggest learning of this time in my career that I've been able to pass on to other women. Yeah, it's fascinating, Jenny. That's something I've seen too. And it's, it's, it's and as you said, with women, it's magnified. I have no doubt about it. I've worked with a good number of women CEOs. I've watched women business leaders. But whether you're a man or a woman, you need to recognize that everyone says embrace change. We love change. But you know what? Human beings don't like change. <laughs> They're uncomfortable with change. And so people that want to progress and grow have got to be prepared to get out of their comfort zone and uh, take risks. I remember I saw it when I was you know, CEO of Goldman Sachs and talking to business schools all over the world and saying, embrace change to the students. You know, change is your friend. Volatility is your friend. And then suddenly when I was, had made the decision to join the Bush administration and be treasury secretary and had to eat my own cooking, I thought, holy cow, <laughs> what, what, what have I done? You know, you know, Hank, on that point, I will say something. It's a bit of a stereotype, but I have found it to be true in every country in the world that this point is, as I said in a moment ago, magnified with women. And most women I know, myself included, I will tell you the 10 things I cannot do before I will focus on the 10 things I can do. And it becomes even more important then for a woman to think about that because often with roles, they're pulling themselves out of them because they're saying, hey, I'm not ready for that job yet. And I witnessed myself do that a couple decades ago and it was my husband who caught me and said, do you realize what you're doing? You know, and he said, because I said, oh, look, I'm not ready for a job. I'm a few years away and I've been offered it. And he said to me, do you think a man would answer the question that way, that he's not ready? 
And she was really right. And it was in that moment I learned that, you know, and, and I've seen it with so many other women. And it's, there are studies that prove this, that they're just first to go to the things they cannot do versus what they can do. And it's a way to frame it in a really positive way in your mind that if you say, no, 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 the fact I'm nervous is a really good thing. And so over the years, I've looked to put myself in those positions because then I know, oh, I'm getting better, you know, because I'm really nervous. And I think, frankly, that's why it makes women such terrific leaders. Because my theory about leadership is this. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, your weaknesses are the opposite of, you know, the strengths. You know, Hank is candid. Hank is indiscreet. Hank is decisive. Hank isn't thoughtful enough. And... The good leaders have the self-awareness to acknowledge their weaknesses and play to their strengths, but put people around them to compensate for their weaknesses. Otherwise, the big jobs always uncover them. So I think you know, that the self-awareness that women have can be a positive. But one more question on women in business, and maybe you've already answered this, but what advice do you give young women in business today? Because I can just tell as I talk to women in business all over the world, they've looked to you as a really important role model. What advice do you give them? Well, I certainly, the piece we just spoke about, I do give them about growth and comfort not going existing and getting used to that. But I also do give them two other pieces of advice. One would be this idea that only you define who you are, not someone else. And I watched that with my mother, right? My father wasn't going to define her as a single mother, homeless, any of this. She didn't let that happen. And you in business have to define who you are, right? Just like if you don't define who your company is, others are going to define it for you. And so that's one piece. And then the other piece of advice, and, and really for young women, I am still a strong proponent of going into engineering and science. Now, you know, I was an electrical engineering graduate and computer science. But what I think, and the reason I'm such a strong advocate of that, is I think it teaches people to problem solve. You don't necessarily have to go into the hard engineering as a job, right, in your future. Now, it's come in handy because I actually spent time in engineering. But as people sometimes forget, I'm actually an engineer by training. But I do think in any job you do, you'll have big problems, and it's a way to work through any problem. So that's why I try to get as many young women as I can into the math and sciences, because in the end, I think it prepares them for just about any job they want. Well said. Now, let me go on to another topic. So you were one of the CEOs who led the charge at the Business Roundtable to enshrine a new philosophy about corporate purpose. You've talked a little bit about purpose today. What do you view as the purpose of a corporation? How do you see it? Yes, this, to my surprise, Hank, became quite a active discussion in the media, right? When I thought what we put together was very common sense. I felt that it was what any company that had endured through time and succeeded and flourished would believe in. So on one hand, I thought it was very straightforward. And it just says that there should be value for all your stakeholders. And, and at a very basic level, to me, there's a virtuous circle between all your stakeholders. And if something breaks with one of them in the long run, that doesn't work. And I've always said to people at IBM's age over a hundred, I felt that it was society that allowed us to operate for the long term. Now, I didn't think that was, I don't believe it was new, by the way, there were 200 CEOs that signed that. I think many of them have, that have come from storied companies really did feel the way, you know, feel that way, right? That they were only allowed and they only existed through decades and decades because they had balanced all those constituencies. 
And of course, you've got to make money to be able to do some of these things. And there's a link between your employees, your shareholders, your community, your customer, your suppliers. I feel that's been second nature. And so that is to me the purpose of the corporation is that there is value for all of those. Because by the way, as you know, I'm passionate about education for underserved communities. That is not just altruistic. I mean, I need these employees. And by the way, I also need an economy that's flourishing so that they want to invest in our companies and buy our goods. So to me, these things are all linked. And I think you saw the linkage now very clearly with COVID and all these struggles with racial justice. This is to me bringing to the forefront this very topic. And this is not just a government topic. This is only solved by people working together because maybe we'll talk a bit about this. I believe so strongly that economic opportunity is the solution to everything we've, all these issues we've talked about, about racial justice, that economic opportunity gives people social equality. And that is the route to fix. And of course, education is a big piece of that. And one of the things we've talked about is we have a need to you know, redefine capitalism in the United States so that more people succeed. We still maintain the incentive to work, the innovative spirit, all of those things that have made our country great, but that our economic system has to continue to e evolve. And I'd like to, to switch now to tech. And the pandemic has really made us all rethink our relationship with technology. People are now ordering groceries online, they're increasingly comfortable with and reliant on teleconferencing. What are some of the lessons you've learned about the opportunities and perhaps the shortcomings of modern technologies during the pandemic? Well, first opportunity. After we were into this a month or two, I saw something I believe interesting happening. On one hand, you saw people conserving cash, capital, liquidity, but because it began to be apparent that this was going to last a longer while, I actually watched companies stop on just short-term actions and it began to be a catalyst to take on some more daring long-term transformations. So you, you had this interesting sort of two sides of a coin. On one hand, you're conserving, you know, kind of short-term measures, capital, focus on liquidity. On the other, people were becoming more bold about doing things for the long-term. You normally don't see those two things happening at the same time. So to me, the opportunity has been, and I see it with our own company, I would use the word that people are reimagining their businesses right now. So I'm absolutely convinced when it comes to how people work, it will be a hybrid model going forward. Meaning people want to go, oh, is everyone going to be remote or are they all going to be in the office? I think there's a place for coming in the office because you have to like build culture, innovation, many like your old business, I would call an apprenticeship business, meaning you know, how do different people in Goldman Sachs, they learn from each other as an example. And so there's a place. Now, maybe you come in once a week with a team, or maybe you come in a week and you're not in a few weeks, or maybe it's a day or, but I think that's going to be permanent. A hybrid model will be reimagined. You know, I think what will be permanent on how people work, you know, this idea that when people got caught and they couldn't get people to work, therefore now they're going to do extreme automation and a lot of things will be contact free. I mean, it was coming from a different issue, a COVID, a sickness, but it's going to change the way things work. And same is true for, you know, you asked me about how IBM's reinvented. And the reason hybrid cloud is so important, it allows people to build something once and run them anywhere. So think about in COVID, how if you could have run things anywhere that you needed, life would have been easier. So anyways, that's a long answer to, I think the opportunities 
to reimagine. And I see people doing that already. And us included, by the way. I mean, I won't even tell you how our real estate has completely changed as an example. Um, or how many layers of management you don't need. Now, that, that poses a, a, a risk as well, I would say, or a concern I have for the economy going forward. I think we still are about to see a lot of restructuring in front of us because of this, as an example. I'm giving you a long answer. You asked me the shortcomings, but go ahead. You want to? No, I, I think you covered it. And, you know, I think I, I was going to add, I don't know if it's a shortcoming or it's just an observation, that I see this as an accelerant, right? You know, yeah. it, it, it's caused changes that were going to take place inevitably anyway to move faster. It is, but here's, here's what I would amplify as a shortcoming, right? Because I actually do believe this is going to be a workforce crisis on par with the Great Depression, because you have accelerated for all of the groups, Black, Latinx, some of the Asian communities, the underserved communities, as you see the unemployment there is very high, right? So this is now a perfect storm of you've got a skills mismatch. We kind of had one before. Now it's really amplified. You've got COVID doing just what you said, accelerating these transformations. And now people, the job mismatch is there. And it makes you remember that 60% of the United States does not have a college degree. So it, to me, the shortcoming is now we've got to prepare the skills for the future way faster than we were before. See, I, I, I agree with you, and, and, and that's my point. These adverse trends that we've been seeing for years, really for decades, are accelerating. Yep. But let's move to another tech topic. You and I have spent some time talking about 5G. First, for those listeners who may not be so familiar with this, give us a brief explanation of what 5G is and why it is such an important topic today. Okay, so first 5G stands for fifth generation. So we're talking about a type of communication network. And I think now that everyone is Zooming and video conferencing, they will identify with this definition. Think of it as if now on your mobile device, you could trust it to do something like heart surgery remotely, meaning that you could trust the network, the response time, that it would stay up, that you'd put your life in its hands. So almost like real time, right? Like you could be doing the surgery and that's what 5G is gonna give you. It's going to give you that kind of speed and that type of capability. That's my layman's sort of explanation that you would never have to worry, right? Today, oh, my line has dropped this. Ha you know, you wouldn't want that to happen in the middle of your heart surgery. And so that you could confidently do anything that way is how I think of what 5G is. And how, did America lose a lead to China on such a critical technology? And what do we have to do to catch up? Hmm. Okay. So I'm not sure I would describe, you and I have talked about this, Hank, and right. you've been into this topic many times. I'm not sure I'm ready to declare a winner or a loser yet. I believe what we have, <laughs> in my simple way, is we have two competing architectures. One is open and one is closed. So what do I mean by closed? So if you think of what the Chinese have built, when I say it's closed, almost like think about buying a black box. I'm making this very simple, but when you, all the hardware, software is all linked together, you get it integrated, that's it. Whereas I believe what's at stake here is competition for the network to be open. And what open would mean is different vendors and companies can make different pieces and put it together and that's how you get your 5G network. And I think there's a fundamental belief I, I, I feel so strongly about that interoperability in technology is your 
best bet for security and safety. When things interoperate, you get checks and balances on each other. And that to me keeps the world safe, the network safe and what they do. And that's why to me, the battle's open versus closed. And I would way better have, I would love to have open and interoperate with the Chinese vendors because I can put things around them. I can check on things. We know how things ought to connect. You could put a wrapper and then you could still have one network with multiple players in it. But, but just like I think you're you know, expert at this, when you think about peace in the world, way, way back in time, right? Trade, these were interoperability, dependencies on each other were the best ways to keep things peaceful, right? And so it's to me the same sort of thinking in a technology lens, interoperability is our best bet for security and safety. And Jenny, I remember very well when we had 10 or 12 CEOs around the table all running big technology companies talking about 5G and the race with China, you made the major point that stood out to me, because you said Huawei, who's the, yes. the Chinese competitor in this area, has already wired most of Europe, much of the rest of the world with 4G. And as long as they are saying, listen, if you want to buy 5G equipment from someone else, you're not going to be able to interface with our 4G networks, then we've got a problem. But we need to assist on interoperability. Yep. That is really the key. And the U.S. is a leader in all kinds of innovations and in the latest software developments, which are going to be key. So you emphasize interoperability then. That was really the first time I'd really heard that clear emphasis on that. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Well, so now if what we do is that when you say, what do you do to quote catch up? I would say you build a vibrant ecosystem of partners from around the world. That's how you win that war. Good. So another technology, and this is right smack dab in the middle of, uh, of IBM strategy. There's been a lot of attention in, in recent years given to quantum computing. Of course, this is an area where you're really, you know, taking high-speed computing to the next level. So what are some of the problems that quantum computing is going to solve? Okay, so here's my, uh, let me give you my sort of top-line simple definition of quantum, and that'll help you with what problems. Today, most computers, and not most, they are ones and zeros. You hear people talk about bits, on or off, and then you put different equations together with that. Uh, my simple way of describing quantum is there are these things called qubits. And so I think of it as every shade of gray in between. So you almost could be in infinite states at one time. And so what does it allow you to do? It allows you to do exponential computing. Now, hey, you would not use this for your bank balance. So quantum does not replace all types of computers. It is for certain problems. And I think your history, you will know this well. Think of the word optimization problems. So when there's many variables that have to be optimized and in a short period of time, like modeling risk, like doing drug discovery, like doing materials modeling, like biology, those are the kind of problems. And so it will, like if we'd had, and we are the number one in quantum by far right now, we've probably got at least 20 commercial quantum systems in countries around the world, people learning because it is a new way. But if we had that a little bit further now with COVID, it would be the ability to actually be testing molecules in their interactions. You'd be doing it in minutes. Now we did form, by the way, a high performance computing, not yet quantum, 
but all the high-performance computers in the world we put pulled together for COVID. And there's a group of about 100 groups of really world-class scientists doing all different sort of antivirals and COVID work right now, but put that on steroids. And therefore, quantum becomes, and I know this is going to sound a bit sort of exaggerated, but it is much more of a revolutionary technology than an evolutionary technology. So it's for a very certain kind of problem. I mean, it, it's for why the world has things like biology wet labs still today. Why? Because all these things are approximations. You know that from risk modeling. They're yeah. all approximations. Otherwise, the system could run for you know months and years before you had an answer because it's so complex. Now I think you could squeeze those down to realistic timeframes. I mean, you could be checking systemic risk on a really real-time basis. So we've talked about these two enormously uh, important areas of tech, you know, 5G communication networks, quantum. Are there any other technologies that you think have the potential to be real game changers that aren't receiving as much attention? What are we ignoring? Well, we didn't talk about hybrid cloud. Now, the reason I say it's a game changer is everyone thinks of the world, the word cloud, and that's super if you're born on the cloud. But how about all the existing companies of the world that already had systems and ways of running their company? What hybrid says is the right kind of work to, will go to a public cloud standalone. Other work can be a private for security and other reasons. And then other, you might just not have the money to remodel the rest of that. And that may be your existing investment you've made in technology. And those three things have to work together. That is the only way the complex systems of this world, like banks, like government, will ever get modernized is with a hybrid cloud. So that would be one. It's essential if you're going to modernize and make these systems better. So that's one. The second we didn't talk about, and I'll end on this point, is I still don't think there's enough focus on bringing all these technologies into the world safely, transparently, and in an inclusive way. So on one hand, that gets back to our point about economic opportunity for everyone and new pathways of education. But on the other hand, it is things like AI and having it be safe. We've worked on AI ethics all over the world. And companies being very clear about how they're going to use these things and how each of us as individuals know what, how our data is used, et cetera. So otherwise, we're going to build these systems with a lot of bias and things we don't want in them for the future. So that would be the second. While it's not a technology, I think it is the safe introduction of these technologies into the world. You know, Jenny, one of the questions that a lot of people have raised is, our technologies moving faster than man's ability to manage them and to use them ethically and productively for the benefit of humanity. And what gives me some confidence that we may achieve that objective is having the opportunity to work with leaders like you who understand the technology but you know, have a strong sense of purpose and ethics, and you've guided IBM so well over the years, and you've left behind uh, for your successors, or will be leaving, you haven't left behind, a terrific company. And I know whatever you do next, and I'm sure you're gonna do a lot of things next that'll continue to make a big difference. So thank you, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Hank, great to see you.
You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.